you're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit www.oasiswaterloo.org. Good morning, everyone. So uh, I was given this topic a few months ago, Summer Reads. uh, And when I was first given the topic, I deliberated for a while about what book I might pick. I thought I could tell you about my recent, probably about 10th reread of the Harry Potter series and uh, maybe make a weak theological analogy somewhere. Or a book I recently read, Bike Nation, How Cycling Can Save the World, and try and sell you all on the benefits of uh, reforming the way we do city planning, but I thought that might be a little dry. Uh, Or a book that I read, which I really would recommend, that I actually read on my summer holiday recently, uh, called Vox. It's a, it's a fiction story set in a dystopia where women are limited to only being able to speak a certain number of uh, words a day. It's quite a disturbing read, but it is fantastic, so I would recommend it. Instead, I chose this book, Hunger Pains, Life Inside Food Bank Britain. Let me tell you about Kevin and hopefully you will know why I chose this book. I first met Kevin in February of 2018. He came into the food bank shaking with anxiety. Despite the best efforts of the volunteers, he felt humiliated to be there. After a while, it transpired that all he had eaten in the last week were a few slices of bread and some cheese. He had nothing else in the cupboards. It also transpired that in February, he had not turned his heating on all winter because he had no money to put on his gas or electricity meter. He had been sitting every night freezing in his flat with nothing to eat and no one to turn. He has severe anxiety and depression and a couple of other health issues, but his out-of-work sickness benefit had been stopped. He had £1.20 in the bank and had pretty much given up hope. We gave him a food parcel, topped up his gas and electricity meter, and I set up an appointment with him to try and sort out his benefits. Unfortunately, it wasn't smooth sailing from there. Here are a couple of notes from when we were working with Kevin. Have been in ongoing conversation with Department of Work and Pensions, re Kevin ESA. 13-plus phone calls, often being on hold for an hour or more. Mixed messages from staff about why Kevin's ESA hasn't been restarted. Another, several months later, has been escalated to his MP who has someone working on this. They had a response from the Department of Work and Pensions saying it would be four months till we hear anything. This is unacceptable. Have chased with MP's office and will chase with ESA also. In the end, it took till December 2018, 10 months later, to try and resolve this. In the end, he just had to apply for a new benefit altogether, universal credit. After every appointment, we feeling almost as powerless as he did, and concerned for his deteriorating mental Thankfully, I saw Kevin a couple of weeks ago. He walked past the Oasis Centre, There we go. Uh, He was a man who absolutely loved his music. He used to play and he used to listen to a lot of music, but he had to sell his record player and his guitar as part of this ordeal. 
I saw him walk past and he had his guitar strapped onto his back and he was chatting with a friend as they walked along the road together. Kevin and the hundreds of other Kevins I know are why I want to talk about this book. The author is a researcher who spends 18 months going, uh, spending time volunteering in a food bank and gathering stories and trying to give a voice to people who maybe wouldn't have been given one otherwise. She's in a food bank in Stockton-on-Tees for 18 months. And her book, through its seven chapters, tells a tale of what life is really like for the millions now of people having to use a food bank in the UK. In the introduction, she says this. There needs to be a new conversation about the everyday realities of a food bank, about the complexities people face, whether they use the food bank only once or are frequent visitors over time. We need to hear about the impossibility of managing when waiting for a delayed benefit payment or when a sanction means six months with zero income. We need to think about poorly paid, insecure work that doesn't protect people from poverty. We need to realise just how damaging the stigma, shame and negativity cruelly attached to people experiencing the sharp edge of austerity can be. We need to realise just how damaging the stigma, shame and negativity cruelly attached to people experiencing the sharp edge of austerity can be. I wanted to share this book with you because the stories she tells are the same stories that I hear and the same people that I work with day in, day out, week after week, year after year. They're people who I sit with and talk with, laugh with and cry with, but they're also people who experience a lot of shame and stigma and judgment every day. I'd like to challenge us, hopefully, through what I'm going to say, that I think we need to rethink our stance on how we perceive the people who are walking through the doors of our food bank and what those people actually look like. Uh, there's a coalition of uh, church groups called the Joint Public Issues Team, and they produced uh, a while ago this fantastic report which is called The Lies We Tell Ourselves, Convenient Myths About Poverty. I think this concept of convenient myths is a really interesting one. We buy into things and we're easily led because it's easy. It pushes the blame on poverty onto the individual who's experiencing that and takes away from any collective responsibility we might have. The myths they talk about are things like, they're not really poor, they just don't manage their money well. They have an easy life on benefits. They're addicts, they're lazy, they're on the fiddle. They cause the deficit. I want to hopefully talk to you about some of these myths and maybe how they differ from the reality of the things that I see. The first thing I think to say is a large proportion of us will claim some kind of benefit at some point in our life. Of the 20 million people in the UK on benefits, 30 million of them are claiming the state pension, something the majority of us will do. A quarter of all families in the UK claim child benefit, which is available to most families with children. Over 2.1 million people in the UK are on uh, non-means-tested disability benefits, which means regardless of whether or not they're working, they have a health condition which means life is more costly for them and they need extra support. 
But despite this, there is this pervasive narrative that benefits are overly generous and give people an easy life. There's actually been a government cap on the amount of benefits that a household can receive since 2013. And it means that a household could only receive a maximum of £24,000 a year or £2,000 a month. Maybe that sounds like a lot, but let me tell you about Lauren. Lauren is a mum at the school here. She has uh, several children who are at the school. And I first got to know her when she came into the food bank because she was being moved from hostel accommodation where she'd been sharing one room with her five children and often the cockroaches that lived in the hostel room with them. She was finally being moved into a flat by the council but it was more temporary accommodation arranged through a private landlord and it cost £1,500 a month. Suddenly that £2,000 doesn't sound like it's going so far. She has to pay out of her £500 left, council tax, water, gas and electric, food, travel, clothes for her kids, school uniform, before you've even attempted being able to purchase a luxury item. Every couple of months, she has to go through the admin and the embarrassment of having to claim extra help through the council, which is discretionary and they could stop at any time. Even if you are lucky enough to be in more affordable accommodation, there's been a freeze on working age benefits since 2016, which means that in real terms, households who are having to claim benefits are £340 a month worse off. It doesn't sound like a generous system to me. It sounds like a hard life of struggle for many, many people. And then there's this issue of they just need to manage their money better. Well, there's not much to manage in the first place. But this myth seeps into our everyday understanding. I was recently at a uh, conference of other food banks and a volunteer said to me, well, someone came into the food bank recently and they had these really nice nails and so we thought we would just uh, sit them down and tell them that they what they really needed was some budgeting help. Their thought was very well-meaning but actually I think it missed the point. Yes, we need financial education in schools. Yes, we need to help our communities become financially resilient. But in order to do that, we need to make sure that people have enough money to live off in the first place, that they are not stuck in low-paid, insecure work or on benefits that don't cover the basic cost of living. And there seems to be this acceptance of scrutinising the financial choices of the poor. They had nice nails. They had an iPhone. Oh, I walked past their house and saw they had a flat-screen TV. Firstly, there are many reasons why somebody might have an iPhone or nice nails. Maybe their mate did it for them. But I think the key thing is that my choices don't get scrutinised in this way. Nathan, my husband and I the other week went for a nice pub lunch on a whim. Spent 40 quid. No problem. Could we really afford that? Probably no. Should we have put that money into our savings account instead? Probably yes. But the fact is, no one is criticising me or scrutinising me or my decision-making or what I choose to spend my money with. 
No one is accusing me of being wasteful, even though I often am with the resources that I have. The fact is people who are reliant on our broken benefit system are having to make impossible choices between which essential bills to pay. Basically, no one that I work with has been on a holiday in the last few years. They got into debt to buy school uniform for their kids. Let's give them a break if they buy a bottle of wine for a fiver or a Netflix subscription. This is just a tiny look at a couple of the myths and a little of the reality of the system that we so often scrutinise. There are hundreds of other nasty, evil intricacies to this system that I could share that show how it often punishes people who need support rather than helping people when they're often at their most vulnerable. I'll speak a bit in a minute about what I think we can do about this, but I want to just have a look at our Bible reading for today. The story that Gillian read earlier uh, is actually found in three of the gospel stories, but I chose to read from Luke. Interestingly, this story in Matthew and Mark's Gospels is found much later on uh, in Jesus' ministry. It comes at a further point along when Jesus has already done more things. Luke has chosen to place this story, we believe, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It acts as a manifesto, as a saying of, this is what I'm about, this is who I am. This is my mission. He stands up and read these, reads these words from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom from the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When Jesus reads these words, he omits from his reading a phrase that's found in the initial text in Isaiah, which says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Again, Jesus reveals what he is here to do. Jesus is not here to enact vengeance, but to bring freedom, good news, hope. The people in Jesus' hometown who were listening to this were not very happy with what Jesus was saying. There's a theologian called Kenneth Bailey who says he thinks the people must have been thinking something along the lines of, what is the matter with this boy? He's quoted one of our favourite texts, but has omitted some of its most important verses. In the process, he's turned a text of judgment into a text of mercy. This is outrageous. The messianic age is a golden age for us and a day of God's vengeance on them. How could this boy grow up here and not know this? In the process, he had turned a text of judgment into a text of mercy. A text of judgment into a text of mercy. Judgment to mercy. Jesus' mission is to the marginalised. This is a radical call, the headline, what Jesus is about. And it's a call to see things through a different lens. I, I think if we believe in inclusion 
And if we follow this radical Jesus, we must extend this to our underlying attitudes and biases and assumptions to people who access benefits, to people who walk through the doors of our food bank every day. Throughout Jesus' life, he showed that he cared about economic justice, cared about freeing the oppressed. And I think our ongoing mission must be through this lens as well. Judgment into mercy. So what can we do about this? Some of you here may be or have been in that position yourself and this feels very uh, real to you and to your experiences. Um, But for many of us, we may be in positions where this is something that feels far removed from our experiences and our realities. So what can we do? What is our place in this? I think we can all use our power and our positions to undermine convenient myths about poverty. Judgment to mercy, comfortable lie to uncomfortable truth. To show you something of what I think this can look like, I want to tell you about one of our brilliant uh, volunteers at the food bank. His name is George. He's a recently retired professional and has been absolutely dedicated to his volunteering. He arrives early every Friday morning, he sets up the tea and coffee on the table, and then he sits and listens to every person that walks through the door with care, compassion, kindness. I remember one lady who came in, and when she sat down and was talking to him, she said, oh, oh, I only really like Yorkshire tea. And George went down to our food bank storeroom. Tea is something we get donated a lot of, so there were many, many boxes of tea. And George rooted through every single one until he found the box of Yorkshire tea to give to this lady. He didn't tell her she was undeserving of good tea or should take what she got given or be grateful for whatever we had to give her. He went the extra mile to try and provide her the best he could when she had had all choice and control taken away from her. But the really brilliant thing about George is that he, just, he doesn't just care for that lady on the Friday morning when he's rooting through the boxes of tea. George has many hobbies in his newly retired life, and one of them is he's part of his local bowls club. He goes there every week, has a great time, loves playing. The people at the bowls club, he says, have rather unhelpful views about the people coming into our food bank. And he has absolutely no hesitation in putting them right very quickly. He chats them and he tells them about the person he sees coming into the food bank who has no money for five weeks while they wait for universal credits. And he tells them about the man he spoke to last Friday who was suicidal because he hadn't been paid any money and he was forced to come here. And he tells them about the reality of life for the people who are struggling from which they are so far removed that they have no idea. He shares with them a vision of what he thinks our society and our economy should look like. And they listen to him because they respect him and because he's there playing bowls alongside them and spending time with them. He's making a real difference with the power and the position and the space he is in. I think we should all aspire to be a bit like George. 
He's not afraid to make noise. He's not afraid to use the power he has to turn a comfortable lie into an uncomfortable truth. I think we all have spaces like that where maybe we could share more or do more to undermine unhelpful narratives. Where is our bowls club? Is it the pub, our workplace, our Uber ride, our stay and play group, our children's school, our visit to our parents? I think we need to think about what spaces we can use to turn judgment to mercy, comfortable lie to uncomfortable truth. I know there are times when I uh, chat to people, maybe acquaintances or even friends, about my work. And I get questions about the benefit system or poverty or, oh, aren't they all just really taking the mick a bit anyway? And sometimes I shy away from those conversations because it feels uncomfortable and it feels difficult and I try and just sort of shove it away in a corner. But it's something that I'm working on because I know that the people I work with often don't have a voice to use for themselves. And I need to be prepared sometimes to have the awkward conversations. Judgment to mercy. Comfortable lie to uncomfortable truth. Because there is no shame in being a person who has to claim benefits or who is stuck on a zero-hours contract. But there's shame for me when I let someone be further stigmatised for the sake of my own comfort. There is shame in the fact that we live in a society that has become Food Bank Britain that is spoken about in this book. And while our attitudes are only one part of this hugely complex issue, if there's public appetite for welfare reform that genuinely supports those who need it, if there are less people who feel acute shame when they walk through our food bank, or if we've amplified and given space and voice to people who often don't have one, we will have made progress and things will change. So just before I finish, I think we have an obligation to wise up about our benefit system, to know what it's really like for those people to know about the policies that they're subjected to and the impact that that has on their lives. We need to think about issues of insecure work and low pay. We need to think about the rising cost of living and the growing number of people swept into poverty. We need to look for their stories and raise their voice up whenever we can. To be wise about the media we consume, what we take at face value without digging a bit deeper. And I think, looking back at the manifesto of Jesus, we should always look to be on the side of the poor, of the oppressed, of the marginalised. And as Jesus turned judgment to mercy, let us look to do the same. Judgment to mercy, comfortable lies, to uncomfortable truths. And I would recommend, this is a fantastic book, it really goes into people's stories, it's, it's a really sort of accessible overview of the kind of uh, policy and political landscape that we're in. It's, it's a couple of years outdated, so some things have moved on, but yes, I would, if you can get hold of a copy, 
may not be your light bit of fiction on the beach, but it's worth putting onto your summer reading list. You've been listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit www.oasiswaterloo.org. 